Hello, friends. It's Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It is Thursday, the 22nd of July, and I, Alex Hochuli, am here with Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in George Hoare's flat in the last couple of days in this flat. So we're going to tear this place to bits after this. Yeah, we're going to have a real bunga party, <laughs> smash the walls up, unless my landlord's listening, in which case we're not. Obviously, we're going to... I was thinking of doing that thing uh, in the film uh, The Square, uh, which d- d- uh, Thomas Vinderberg's film, where he hires this guy who's an amazing imitator of animals, specifically apes. And this ape goes ape well the guy no it's a human the guy, being the guy goes, goes ape. ape the guy goes ape uh, at this dinner party at this uh gallery and, like a... and starts abusing this woman and people just watch and because they think it's part of the performance anyway so that's what i'm thinking of doing here uh, who are you gonna abuse Which... well that's the thing because he pulls a woman by by her hair like right. off her chair and and none of us have enough hair to, that's to not yeah that i mean technically me but yeah it's mm. okay i don't maybe abuse george not me well okay well um, i i thought i'd been a good host but if that's uh, <laughs> if that's the plan maybe we can reconvene and, and elsewhere. the third person will just sit and watch thinking this is, this is part, part of the bunker performance this is the way the bunker boys do it so um we, uh, I, I, I guess listeners uh, or people who follow me on Twitter will know I've been complaining about Britain. Complaining about everything. But what specific, what's been grinding your gears about Britain? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not, we're not doing like As a kind usual. of one of those moments. But it's just a, a very annoying place where like social life, leisure activities was already, were already like very bureaucratized before the pandemic. Look, if, you, the if, pandemic you, don't, if you don't like it, it here, then go home. <laughs> I, I will. I, I don't live here. I, that's that's the whole point. Yeah. Um, and, uh, oh. and and today I just thought, like, what does Britain symbolize to me? And it's throwing a fucking tantrum in the self-checkout machine um, when you can't, you, 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 you scan an alcoholic beverage, they call you, you have to call someone over, they don't come over, there's no bags, you can't even pay for a bag because like, there's no bags there. Um, you're just sounds treated. really oppressive. It's it, like well, practically like fascism. It, it kind of yeah. It's it's bagging area fascism. Um, <laughs> this is what Brexit this is, has done this is, to us. The, yeah, well, this is yeah. No, it's not Brexit. I mean, it's just you know, it's uh, this is the Tory government. The, the neoliberalism. Current, the current political disposition is a, is an unexpected item. In <laughs> yeah. The bagging area. Oh my god. Okay. Fair good enough. one. Now that was a good a good line to finish on. Uh, that but one thing i would say is that those <clears throat> kind of self-checkouts make you think of uh, there's a theory of resistentialism this idea that Mad. inanimate inanimate objects can conspire against you and it's one of these uh theories which is kind of intuitively plausible but actually has no scientific basis at least as far as as i'm aware so yeah, l- yeah that's, just how, that's just what they happens are, when i'm hangry they are a pain in the ass though um and the fact that you have to do everything you have to check yourself in now at the airport you have to bag your own stuff you know like when you're at the supermarket you have to blow your own crap. nose you have to wipe your own ass i mean oh, this is really yeah. difficult testing the airport thing is true though because i remember thinking like 10 years ago you know airports were just i love airports by the way i think they're i, I just get very excited just the logistics, the right. planes flying. It, it gets spect- me a little bit. Keep it gives your spectrum, little... <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, I've got a little uh, Asperger's boner uh, thinking about it. But <laughs> Little, um, little. <laughs> I saved the big one for something. Anyway, the, let's, like, the point about airports is that I was thinking all of society is going to become like an airport. And it basically is, you know, like high-tech shopping mall, all these kind of consumer goodies available to you, but in, incredibly, like, controlled, right? It's one and, of these. Like, London yeah. feels like that, sanitized clean you know like a, like it's a posh airport it's a nice airport it's, it's, it's interesting that you yeah, like airports terminal five. because they're, they're i think they're like non-places aren't they that's what i can't remember the name of the anthropologist now who who calls them that but they're just you know they're places that you go through there's you know they're they're deliberately designed to be 
this is going to sound yeah. offensive to Alex. It de- does it deliberately designed to be characterless and kind of to have no like no um, uniqueness? Of any no, but then, but then, but because Alex that, because that no I mean, maybe that's a reflection on the sort of people who like who exactly, like airports. Yeah. No, Tom I mean, Hanks, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but but that's the thing about them, like, or rather the thing about London that it feels, especially like the inner areas of London, very characterless and. Uh, why are you giving him? Are you feeding him water? Are you trying to keep keep George <laughs> hydrated? Wanna, it's important to keep hydrated. <laughs> I don't want to put it on the table because it'll like uh, knock the mic. Well, what a professional we've got over here. Exactly. A- anyway, we're, this is the three articles. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna I guess move uh, relatively quickly on to discussing these pieces. I had something I wanted to talk okay. about actually okay. before we started, which was my prediction, um, which I made. I think the last three articles that England were going to win the Euros. How did um, you feel? Did you cry? Did you cry when they lost? It was possibly the worst game of football I've ever watched in my entire life. It was so stressful. It was just like obviously scoring did early. Did you cry? No, I didn't cry. Why not? I, because because we did You're better than we be we did better than I thought You're we would. You're only allowed to express emotion like in football matches and no other occasion. I think it was Winston Churchill who said that Italians lose wars like they were football matches and lose football matches like That's they were a wars. Terrible quote. But it's racist, it, probably. English, English lose football matches like football matches. We have quite a lot more experience than the Italians are losing football matches. So, um, but yeah, no, it was you know good tournament. So, well done, our, our brave and loyal, brave and loyal boys. I, I feel like they need what, to use another Churchill quote. They need gassing to to stimulate. What is it? How is it? Churchill, <laughs> the Churchill quote to stimulate the you know Jesus a nice Christ. Yeah, uh, um, you're gonna have to finish that quote. I'm not, quite, I'm, sure, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know that one. More Alex or I did it out. <laughs> No, anyway, uh, the three articles we're doing um, are uh, three pieces in, uh, I guess, what you could call conservative outlets, but uh, how big the C is on conservative varies quite a bit between the three outlets. I would say on on one of them, the the C is smaller than the rest of the text, so it just looks like conservative because the C is is smaller. Anyway, so, I mean, the outlets in, in particular are uh, the Times of London, the Financial Times. Of and, London. And, and Unheard. Of um, London. Also of London. Uh, <laughs> this is where we're doing a British-themed episode. Um, All right, Governor, let's get on to the articles then. Yeah. I'll have a right ding-dong discussing them. <laughs> and then we'll go out for dinner. <laughs> uh, right, so... These articles, I think, attest as a whole, because we've selected them kind of independently and it ends up cohering into a nice little theme um, of kind of a split in conservatism between neoliberals and, I guess, post-liberals. Um, they also attest, I think, in their different ways to that's social and That's a very astute point. Um, well, we'll, we'll get on to that. So I don't it, know who you're telling, our listeners. Who are you telling me? I'm telling you. Were, you were looking very sceptical. I wasn't that, looking sceptical. That's just my face. Well, don't offend me. The, list, the listeners can believe me or believe you. They can't. They won't see the video evidence. And I, I think they, I think they know what, what's going on. Anyway, um, it's also about social and gluing. Uh, what we've talked, well, the term we used, I think, to talk about it. We had an term episode you of Benjamin Funk. Yeah, term I, okay, <laughs> but we called the episode that. So obviously, you didn't, you didn't disagree. Um, no, the, the image that went with it. You was tolerate my cool. benevolent rule, so you know that's sovereignty, <laughs> as you always try to explain. Tolerate, yeah. tolerate maybe. Uh, um, anyway, so it's also about the state and media apparatus trying to grab and control people, and also about people escaping from that control, um, no longer buying uh, official narratives. Anyway. Uh, without further ado, uh, Phil, you're going to introduce the first piece. Tell us yeah. what it is. So the title is "The Real Danger Is Insurgency on the Right." It's by it's an op-ed in the Times on um, from uh, Monday, July the nineteenth, and it's um, by William Hague, who's a 
significant um, conservative Tory politician here in the UK. And just, Former minister and so on. Yeah, so just to... Um, Former for, leader. For the benefit, yeah, yeah. For the benefit of our listeners who might not um, know the background, just to set it up a bit, because I think it's important to understand um, how significant what um, Haig is saying in this piece is, if you know his background a bit. Um, so as these, as the guys have said, um, he was leader of the Tory Party in um, the mid to late nineteen, the mid to late nineteen nineties, um, when the Tories were in the doldrums confronting uh, Tony Blair. He was also foreign minister for a while under the David Cameron, um, under the David Cameron governments. He's a senior figure um, in the Tory Party generally, and he made his debut, in fact, when Thatcher was still prime minister, still leader of the Tory Party. He was a young Tory back then, and he made his debut giving a speech, which was um, very well received in the early nineties, late eighties, I think. And big Thatcher fan, like yeah, big Thatcher fan. And so all of that is important because um, in this piece, basically, he's talking about how um, he expresses something we've spoken about before, which is that um, conservative governments are shifting away from um, justifying their rule in terms of um, the market and overseeing the market to the role of the state. Um, public intervention, uh, government intervention in the economy, shaping the economy for particular kinds of outcomes. Um, and so to that extent, you know, it's um, very predictable. And he's talking here about the fact, the fact that we have uh, major kind of conservative parties like the Tories shifting politically. Um, in terms of their economic policies, opens up the prospect of an electoral insurgency from libertarian parties. Um, so he says possibly a UKIP, um, which is referring to the old um, UK Independence Party, which um, the kind of populist challengers to the Tories. Anyway, the point of all this is to say what's str- what's really striking about it more. I mean, so you know, all he says is he says something which is familiar. We talked about the Tories are going kind of um, becoming pro-state. There's a pro-state, big government conservatism emerging, and all of that is expected. What's really striking to me, though, about it is the fact that he shrugs off Thatcherism so lightly. So someone whose politics was shaped so significantly by um, being a neoliberal politician in so many ways just kind of shrugs it off. And he says even more strikingly, he says things like, oh, you know, well, we understand now that the market can't deliver certain kinds of goods that are important to us. They won't be able to solve the climate change. They won't be able to deal with equity in the wake of Brexit, blah, blah, blah. And so he concedes, you know, some of the most basic criticisms of the market as if they were just discovered, you know, so the things you would learn about the market, he just concedes them just as if, you know, as if he's just kind of, we stumbled across them and as if this doesn't come with years and years of um, mismanagement, of misery, of asset bubbles, of low growth, of the growth and inequality and all of these things. Or, or indeed pretends that uh, effectively free market Thatcherism has delivered prosperity, but, you know, has these downsides and actually... Yeah the amount of prosperity it has delivered is questionable because the yeah. kind of growth mm. has been relatively stagnant. So it's this kind of empty-headed technocracy, but at the same time, I think the fact that he's able to concede all of this indicates just under how little political pressure they are. Yeah. So they can just kind of um, pivot and adopt this new kind of governing philosophy and they won't be held to account for everything that they stood for in the past. Well, I think what he's... Yeah, but what he's saying is that there is a risk or this is what he's saying is the, the real risk for, um, for the Johnson project, is that you will have this new kip. You will have this kind of small state libertarian low tax insurgency from the right. And that's and that, he seems to suggest, is going to be 
is going to be the battle. It's not about you know what Labour are going to do. Yeah. It's um and that's what what Johnson should be should be careful about. And you know I think there's he's kind of stumbled on and this was going to be the point that I was going to make on you know there is a, there is a split within within 21st century conservatism at least in in Britain on this on this point like the majority seems to have gone with the big you know big states high spend kind of state capitalist type model or you you could call it post neoliberal and then you have some some Thatcherite and he says will be a minority some kind of Thatcherite holdovers um, but just a quick before I have another quick point to make about Thatcher. Um, you might not like her, but you have to admit that if you've had a Mr. Whippy ice cream, I don't know if either of you have. So this is the, you know, you've got Italian gelato and that's pretty good. But if you want really the best ice cream in the world, it's this kind of quite chemically tasting, um, very bright white, delicious English ice, British, sorry, British ice cream, which you have traditionally with a flake in, so like a, a chocolate flake. Um, and the story goes that Mrs. Thatcher was one of, it was in the lab that helped um, develop this because it's actually very soft serve. So you can just like put it in this container and then you you just pump it out because it's actually uh, liquid with lots of air bubbles in oh it's really I have really no idea interesting what the relevance useful. of that was yeah. what was the point really helps to clarify that these uh, oh i didn't i forgot to say I, so yeah, i had i had one of these mr whippies uh, last week and it was really good and it made me think are you high it made me think maybe there is something more to thatcherism in its kind of <laughs> cultural legacy than people often yeah. give it credit for yeah anyway on a more serious note i think you know william Hague might be a little bit intimidated and that's provoking his political response i mean you know i, I think he's a little bit intimidated by the big johnson project um Sorry, the, you, listeners the, can't see that the tumbleweed that just inexplicably moved across my, the big across Johnson the, pro- across the living big, room. Because Johnson also means penis. Oh, and so wow. it's a big, big jo- so and it's he, a dick joke. It's a, and he has a small penis, and he right. and Johnson right. has a big one by you know. So, but how do you know? I, I, mean, I I seem to remember correctly, and if this is William Hague, if it's not William Hague, then apologies. But his like wasn't he like a, a lad? He would be like, oh yeah, I drink, I drank ten pints last night, and then played football. No, he tried to do it. So that was part of his trying to act normal. You've said like <laughs> one of the things that make me normal is um, I like a pint. I'm a raging alcoholic. <laughs> I drink ten. No, I like night. a pint and I'd like to see my wife with some nonsense like that. So, but that was like back to see in the his day. His wife with some nonsense. Oh, so he's a cuck. <laughs> ah, this this just builds the the big Johnson project kind of theory that I'm building here. Alex, uh, you're talking nonsense. Yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway, so only to wrap up, I suppose it was only to say that um, it's you know insofar as he understands this in terms of electoral. Uh, opportunism you know so we've got a shift with the electorate you know so we were wrong for 30 years about the kind of policies and economic outlook that we had who cares no big deal and there might be kind of a small insurgency on the right but again no big deal you know we made mistakes were made you know like uh, devastation I, to certain parts of the country economically but you know what it's fine no i don't think he's saying no big deal i, I read it slightly differently he's sort of saying this is this is the warning like so it's actually a bit of that kind of here's a warning for the johnson project um but yeah, I guess it's an interesting yeah, he, one, right? He admits errors in terms yeah. of the in terms of economic policy. Yeah, they made a few errors. That's the point, right? But like, to, make, them, to make an omelette, you, can admit you have to have he, a frank and honest discussion with some eggs. You and have that's, to break, that's what they did. Eggs. <laughs> the real point is, though, the willingness to concede um, under so little pressure, particularly from the left, I think is the most important point. Yeah. I, I read this... Okay, so I mean, I, all that, notwithstanding, I don't disagree with any of that. I read it slightly differently, or I, I kind of read into it... 
um, a kind of discussion about freedom and their misconceptions of freedom, right? So the article, the hook for the article is Boris Johnson's partial rejection of a, a new policy or, or a kind of campaign called the New Food Project or something like that, um, which is trying to respond to poor nutrition in Britain um, and the way that especially like the working class doesn't have access to, you know, healthy foods and so on. Um, and yeah, try it's going to raise tax and it, sugar it, and salt exactly, content. And build, and build a Waitrose in every left behind community. Waitrose is like a high end. It's like a Whole Foods. Um, no, it's nothing. It's nothing. But just for the sake of listeners who don't know what a Waitrose don't is. Don't patronise our listeners, Alex. Okay, anyway. I used to work at John Lewis, so I'm, 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 I can and? speak with lived experience as to what, now, what the Now George are. is pretending to be working class. Yeah. Like, anyway, so working at John Lewis is not pretending to be working class. Well, if you work at John Lewis, it's a, you know yeah. you're you're okay. service. Well, like. you clearly don't know the John Lewis ethos. Anyway, sorry, I'm okay. I'm derailing it. Um, as usual, the uh, the point here is that the 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 kind of this food program is not a kind of state led thing to improve nutrition by providing people with free fruit and vegetables or something or subsidizing healthy food or providing a food program what it's doing is i mean it's effectively punitive and micromanaging of health in the way very much in line with what British policy has been for the past twenty thirty years instituted really by new labor this kind of micromanagement of of life. And it's, as I said, it, it's punitive. So what this food thing looks like, it seems like it's in line with the whole history of kind of liberal and socialist reform, trying to provide, you know, healthier food or whatever. You can think of like Upton Sinclair and the jungle, right, where it was a big campaign against uh, uh, against unsafe food and all that kind of thing. And this is completely different. Um, and I think Haig's uh, acceptance of like big government or, or kind of a, a post-neoliberal conservatives seems to imply that like these kind of interventions are what people have to accept i mean i don't know if this was your reading of it but he's kind of toying with the, the idea and going well you know if johnson's going to be big government this is the way you have to do it but this ignores that big government in this sense is really just kind of the forms of social control that have existed for the past 30 years of, of micromanagement of yeah of i mean i think that's so it's a punitive so johnson is skeptical of this new kind of tax regime whereas haig seems to be more willing to countenance it but, but as a way of raising revenue for the new big state because he doesn't want to raise revenue in other areas through taxing corporations or income tax and, and but this shows how limited uh Haig's yeah, understanding sure. of things is because his only understanding is like about more or less tax yeah. um and and uh and i mean he he mentions i think the same tension between vital change on the one hand and the limiting power of and limiting the power of government on the other so to balance these things off right um but the only way he can conceive of change is through increasing state power over individual life right for example like uh taxing taxing unhealthy foods, right? And th so there's no conception of, of actually intervening in the market to provide greater freedom or, you know, sure. higher living standards. It's like, it, it's the, the, the trade-off is just one between, it's either the state doing nothing, being kind of completely free market Thatcher, right? Leaving people to their own devices or uh, kind of kind of quite punitive or interventionist measures. No, indeed. So anyway, I, the, the point of all this, I guess, is just that for all that he's, um, rolling over and accepting this change within conservatism under little pressure, as, as Phil has rightly pointed out, 
I think there's still a, a, a kind of neoliberal view on things because he talks about, for example, oh, we need education to combat dependency. I yeah. the same old neoliberal yeah. recipes yeah. to combat poverty, uh, etc. And then also he, he concludes, I thought was a telling line. It means being very ambitious, but preparing people for considerable change in their lives. Now, this is not the state transforming society, but just the state gaining more power over individual lives. So, what, yeah, one, one thing which which was not a central point but follows on from this and was something which i thought was interesting in the article is essentially he sort of says yeah well in- intervention in around climate change is is necessary now i mean that i think that's almost like part of the common sense now that it is, yeah. there's going to be net you know um net zero is going to be is going to be difficult for everybody um but we're going to have to change a lot of things and you know yeah. that's that's there's no um, reasonable alternative or, or push push back against that. So yeah, I mean we'll we'll see what happens there. But I think there there is another point here, which is about this this new kip uh, idea. I think he's I think he's quite serious about this being a a threat to the I to the Tories. But he's deluded. I so because so this idea is that there's going to be there's going to be like unlike um, the old UKIP, which was kind of very nationalist and uh, sort of an outrider of the Tory party, this new KIP would be a kind of free marketeer outright, a bit like the Tea Party in the US or like AFD in Germany. And I don't see yeah. that emerging in Britain. No, well, this I is, don't either. And it, won't, is, it wouldn't break through the um, the, the um, first past the Like post. hardcore free market is like a very minoritarian position. Well, this, yeah. this, this I think is the, um, it's a question whether you would have the, so essentially this is like people carrying their, their copies of The Road to Serfdom and slamming them down on <laughs> tables. And this is, you know, this is what, our party believes basically you know the thatcherites still i mean is it how appealing is that project today given all its manifest failures that's 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 the question there will be some but i mean they will the same way that ukip was outriders for brexiters within the tory party you know there could be a small scale insurgency but it won't be i mean you know ukip got one mp though it got many many votes but as a result of britain's um electoral kind of system meant it could never break through into parliament yeah but ukip would be the same no no but i think you're i would completely disagree that if if your conclusion then is that ukip wasn't successful UKIP was unbelievably no, successful. UKIP was successful over the question of Brexit, right? But there is yeah. no other similar issue on which uh, an, il- an insurgency from the outside could force the hand of the Tory party. Yeah. Small state. We have a referendum a a, about state. whether to well, to, not, to happen, fire one in two, um, or no. maybe like to, to, to decimate the civil service. No, I don't no, know. See, yeah. that's not going to happen, no. is it? Well, you know, think think big. All right. Uh, moving on, George's article. Yeah. So the article that I um, selected for this three articles is by uh, Janan Ganesh, who is somebody we've talked about, I think, on the podcast before. Yeah, we've slagged him off little little while ago, though. Um, he is a um, inimitable um, opinion writer for the FT. He is one of those neoliberals. Well, maybe. I think he's like their in-house contrarian. He must be like on some kind of contract to write things which which piss people off and get clicks because You mean he's employed by the newspaper? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, not all not all journalists are like that, Philip. Actually, some of them are very very fine, very decent people. Um, so his his uh, most recent effort is called uh, To Curse Social Media is to Exonerate Society. And the sub uh, subheading, subheadline, good grief, is the deck. Yeah. <laughs> the the if, if that's the title of the presentation, this is the 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 Get second on with bit. It. Is called demand for vaccine disinformation is more troubling than su- the supply of it. And that you know the basic thesis 
um, which I can summarize so you don't have to read it. Um, listeners is that basically people are stupid. Um, we've moved now from a situation where the idea was that Facebook kills people um, because it because it dupes them, it controls the flow of information, and people are kind of you know um, gullible. And now it's just that people are idiots for wanting misinformation. So we've moved from kind of people being dupes to people being morons. Um, and he he kind of has some some um, I wouldn't say evidence, but he has some some things to to kind of throw into the the mix some kind of um smoked fish to, to stir into the kedgery um which is that that's that's and that's ep thompson um uses that that that's a metaphor if i remember correctly well that's right, yeah, just why do you have to react like that when i'm just expressing myself in a in a in a um, vivid and um, react like what? George? I didn't know what history was until like a week ago when we, I went out for brunch with people and they and they told me what it was. So it's not like it's, a, it's not like a, a, a readily accessible reference. Well, whatever. So um, yeah, so he says that the less vaccinated states um, are more likely to vote Republicans. You know, it's just a, a collection of all of these standard like um, low information voter type type ideas. Um, and the conclusion is that the that Facebook is easier to confront um, than the prospect that mature democracies must live with a permanent mass of essentially unreachable citizens. So this kind of idea that structural changes in politics or structural failures um, f- to connect with to connect with people could have any role in the explanation is completely rejected. Um, and I think to put it into the wider context, we've talked previously about how in the the noughties um there was a moral panic about apathy like why is nobody engaged in politics like what the fuck do we can we do about this we need we need to get we need to get people interested in politics and discussing politics and doing political action and all that kind of stuff to after 2016 this idea that in fact the, the moral panic moved to one about ignorance of of um citizens and particularly around social media that there's a that's what the um the, the chattering classes are currently particularly worried about so yeah that was my i i did want to go in initially for a for a different uh piece but i was i was outvoted and i won't i won't i won't say <laughs> how, didn't, that how about was. you you use your own choice and agency george you're not like one of these voters that ganesh talks i about. was i was duped I was, uh, I was. Speaking of dupes, uh, Janan Ganesh, he's ama- what's interesting about this piece is that he makes it halfway there and then runs headfirst into the door, um, just smashes his face right into it. Does right he open the door? Does he open the door? Open, yeah. No, no the, door's, the, door's, sure. the door's closed because okay. he makes it halfway there. He's about to open the door and instead he just like smashes his face. Have you ever opened Have the, you ever done that? Have you ever opened the door into your face? Uh, yeah, I did that. I was kind of sleepwalking. I, I smashed this glass kind of bit of Were the window. Were you drunk? And, and, Were you um, drunk? I mean, possibly. Yeah, it does happen. <laughs> anyway, so Janan Ganesh, right? He's, I think he's good because he's critical of these sort of bots caused Brexit or for that matter, bots caused Trump sort of stories. And he dismisses the sort of anti-social media um, or, or rather the, the claims which hold that social media is responsible for all the world's ills, you know, social media caused populism, etc. Right? Um, but... He then, so, you know, he kind of goes against that sort of knobs, neoliberal order, breakdown syndrome sort of fixation with grasping for disinformation theories to explain what's happened with the world. And then he, but then he, then he goes concludes, he's like, and the problem is, of course, society, you people, you people are fucking stupid. You're wrong. Not you people, not, not the readers of the FT, but the other people. Republican voters in certain states. So, I mean, he goes, you know, the paranoid style, you know, Richard Hofstadter's term uh, kind of really 
bad, I think, not useful. But anyway, the paranoid style in American politics, um, which is a, a, the kind of predates, I guess, knobs in by by yeah. about fifty years or something. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he says a paranoid style predates social media. It's social media did not cause this. Um, but then, yeah, he says that ultimately society is a the problem. These massive unreachable citizens. And yeah. this is the point about social and gloomy that I was foreshadowing at the beginning, which is this idea that there are there are a significant minority in, in, in Western societies now who are effectively unreachable uh, by um, by kind of mainstream ideology. The glue has um, has withered away what, what and, glue and, do? and obviously melted away the glue is melted away and obviously like it's not a, a good thing insofar as it has led to uh a, definitely a kind of paranoid style and a kind of um you know disbelief of you know or deep questioning of even kind of sci- scientifically valid uh mm-hmm. you know truths and whatever but obviously he decides not to look for a solution and and that right. in that regard he's, he's still within knobs you know he's still yeah. kind of neoliberal order so it's, yeah <laughs> so i want to do something slightly unusual um which is um despite the fact that he wears a cravat he's got a terrible hairstyle and a very punchable face this is john and ganesh neither alex nor george um despite that i want to defend him a bit on this score because i think he there is a point he makes which i think is a good one which he says that also part of the reason um, you know people like President Biden and liberals like to blame social media is because essentially of their lack of uh, their lack of willingness to take out to take political leadership um, to take citizens with them and their unwillingness to um, you know it's essentially kind of uh, blaming social media as an abdication of political leadership and political responsibility. No, but he doesn't say that. He does. He's, he no. He says to exonerate society. It's it's so instead of saying there's to a strand polit- politics no, or, look, po- or political there's failure. a strand in the argument which I think you know he makes which is uh, there's a de- half decent point. I mean, like Alex says, he kind of runs into the doorpost or opens the door in his face or whatever. But it was, um, so, there, you know, there was an element in there which I was sympathetic to. But and on the one hand, you know, and this is the contradiction, I suppose, you know, he says, like, I can understand why people in Putin's Russia might be vaccine sceptic without thinking as to the many reasons as to why, you know, US citizens might be equally mistrustful of the US government. Um, despite the fact it's not, you know, an authoritarian state, I think it's reasonable that U.S. citizens could be sceptical of their government, and that would feed into vaccine scepticism. That isn't a surprise. So the naivety, really, you know, the naivety is on his part. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, um, like I say, I think there is there is a point there to the way in which um, the social media kind of function as a way of uh, abdicating political responsibility and political leadership. So maybe then if if he um, if we kind of draw out from this <clears throat> like so you, as I said you had this moral panic about apathy of, of citizens then about ignorance maybe it's going to be like the next one's coming is that people are too untrusting or they're too like yeah untrusting detached or like unreachable like yeah. like and that's and you know basically. yeah mistrustful and like why why don't they trust these politicians like that yeah, why and, don't and they so, trust us yeah. so it's it's a, i mean it's a it's a number of different ways to basically to to blame you know particularly working class voters for doing the wrong thing but maybe there will be a change like maybe the ignorance thing is is played out and people realize that you can't just call people morons to their face and so now it's going to be that they're pa- pa- paranoiacs conspiracy i they'll be patronized why do you not trust us tell us what we can do to make you trust us what do you want from us so that'll be the kind of the moment, i think right? there's a coming confrontation which is going to be much bigger than the 2010s populist moment 
Uh, and it's in the 2020s, it's going to be a big division between people who just disbelieve all official narratives um, and, and, and those who defend kind of official narratives and not just of the government or of the state, but of the institutions of science, of journalism, of law. Which side, right. Which side will you be on? Well, that's it's difficult. I mean, my, my sympathies, Would I guess. Blue pill or red pill? Well, my sympathies are with. I, I Why not take, which one's which? But, I'd go purple pill. Uh, but which is bunga pilled, which bunga is pilled. exactly uh, well, well no, so, so exactly to provide leadership beyond that because we know that that deep skepticism, that cynicism, is self defeating, yeah. right? Because they it means that you don't believe any alternative political leadership. Yeah, but, and then you had like Jessica, or not Jessica, Jacinta Ardern, rather, uh, the New Zealand Kiwi Prime Minister, recently saying. Um, believe only news that comes from the government in respect of the pandemic. Yeah, and it astoni- you know an astonishing, an astonishingly airheaded claim from an elected leader in a liberal democracy to say, and the complete lack of self awareness to be so dumb as to say that hmm. um, without thinking. You know, not to mention all the kind of uh, the draconian character of the New Zealand lockdown as well in all of this. So I think you're right. I think, yeah. and there will be more idiocy, liberal kind of idiocy from people like Arden people, saying you must trust the government. And if you don't trust the government, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I think people people know when they're being lied to, or and it's. I think COVID has been a been really something for this. Like some of the some of the the, the reportage. It's like, what is this? Is this the same world that I'm that I'm living in? That that's, that's being sort of presented back to me but anyway i couldn't i couldn't really focus on on the discussion there because i was thinking about bunga pill being purple pill like does that mean that like you take both pills so you like what would have happened if if neo had taken both it's a dialectical synthesis of the red and the blue pill um so you basically or it's like d12's purple pill you get both no 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 you, you you get the red pill and the blue pill so you see reality, but you also get the bliss of like the perfectly constructed world. The perfectly constructed world becomes reality. There you go. Yeah. So you take you take one of these two pills and you're like, oh, nothing's happening. Then you take <laughs> you take the second <laughs> pill and then the first pill kicks in and you're like, no, they don't. They don't cancel each party. other out. Yeah, exactly. Then you go onto the. Bunker. The only way there's the desks at the front where you can get your pills tested. <laughs> Please make use of this service. Have a safe time tonight. Enjoy yourselves, kids. And on Saturday too. And, and on Saturday too. Well, it'll already have happened it'll by the time this happened. comes out. Um, anyway, so uh, should we move on? Yeah, let's let's move on. Yeah, why why not? It's Britney, bitch. Uh, that's what we're talking about. This was the best piece that I read uh, in the past two weeks. I thought it was excellent. Mary Harrington in Unheard. She's we're, great. We are all Britney now. Um, Mary describes herself as a reactionary feminist, which sounds terrible. But uh, I, I'm, I was trying to figure out exactly what her politics are. But she's, a, I guess, an old school feminist who uh, hates a lot of what's going on now, which yeah, actually makes a lot of sense. Anyway, so... Um, She uh, starts off by noting how um, Chris Crocker, famously of that video, Leave Britney Alone. uh, If you haven't seen it, then you should treat yourself. All you people want is more, 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 more. Leave her alone. You're lucky she even performed for you bastards. Leave Britney alone. Um, and you've probably been living under a rock so, anyway. so that was 2008 I was, I was like oh wow that was yeah a long time ago I remember laughing at that right and thinking oh this is just 
like celebrity fans mm. being over invested in celebrity lives and um and you know yeah basically living their lives through through the kind of celebrity culture so it's, i just find it pathetic like why should you be crying about whatever is happening to britney spears who cares she's successful you know um and mary harrington comes to the defense of chris crocker and uh kind of pretty convincingly um so i mean it starts off by noting how britney and peak britney was real end of history sort of moment her naughty's videos drip with baroque jaded eroticism a pure end of history vibe it's all overlaid with a glossy knowingness that suggests that suggests for those who only know how to play the game, everything is within their, within their grasp, right? So it's good for those who play the game, but for everybody else, it might be a loser of that game. And in fact, as, as it turns out, Britney was herself a loser of that game because she was put under conservatorship, which is um, insane, right? Um, yeah. my, the, the conservatorship of Britney, I mean, for me, I thought that was like, okay, this is basically Britney Inc., right? Britney Incorporated. Um, and it's like the board of Britney Inc., or maybe even better, a private equity group deciding that they need to replace an inadequate and failing CEO, that is to say, the human Britney, uh, with a new CEO, right? So the company is about to go under, under Britney the human's leadership, and private equity vultures come in, mount a coup, to save Britney Inc. and force it back to profitability. And that is the case, however much they have to asset strip the company, however they have to, much they have to asset strip Britney Inc., that is to say, submit Britney the human to a lot of unfreedom uh, for the greater good of Britney Inc., Britney the company. Um, and so basically they, they, they decapitated her, right? Or, or basically, you know, severely it's, reduced her freedom. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's shocking. The um, conservatorship, <clears throat> which has been just, I, I watched the documentary and it was, yeah, it was quite sad, <laughs> um, actually really sad, that like the conservatorship was described as a hybrid business model. Like the, and that's like the the um, the ability that Britney has to make decisions is completely taken away. She can't have her IUD removed. She can't like wow. start a family with her new with her new partner because her dad, who's who she was estranged from, and then came back when she started making money, like just like Amy Winehouse, um, basically like owns her. It's really it's one of those things where you kind of you look back on <clears throat> something which you know happened a, a decade ago and you realize that your understanding of it was just completely um completely backward and you know she's been she had to do this vegas res residency she didn't want to do like it's it's re it's really really shocking and i just yeah i didn't really i think i didn't really realize that at, at the time um but yeah anyway yeah, and what's interesting is Mary Harrington reads into this story a sort of metaphor for all of us because yeah. Brittany, in some ways, represents a winner. She knew how to play the game, but also the loser. She's someone desperate to reassert some personal boundaries, some control, and some uh, effectively privacy, right, to create the space to have privacy. And the Brittany industrial complex didn't allow her to withdraw into it. And that's kind of the case for all of us because we participate in social media, we participate in the kind of in, in compulsive sharing and we're thereby complicit in robbing ourselves of the capacity to have any sort of private life. And again, this is another clever reading of, of Mary Harrington's, Chris, 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 Chris Crocker represents or exemplifies this trajectory because he has became a sort of micro-celebrity from his Leave Britney uh, Alone video, passed through various kind of social media kind of little flings and things he's done, and has now ended up on OnlyFans, as, as you do. So this is him basically trading uh, his private life in for hyper visibility. Um, Do we need like a conservatorship for you, Alex? 
<laughs> we should we put you on OnlyFans? We will do Wait, what's best. We will do what's best for you. Are you going to pimp me out on OnlyFans? You, you can, and you, you can, will not have your IUD removed. Okay? You, you can trust us. Like we, we do know, we do know what's best. I mean, it's. I'll be like Britney's dad, and we'll put you under conservatorship. Yeah, I mean that. that this, I think, is the difference, obviously, between Chris Crocker and Britney. Is the like <clears throat> the way in which Britney has been forced to do this, like the. The death of the subject exemplified. Not to be yeah, too I mean, grandiose well, about it. It's like here, here is somebody who's who who is who had who a, is, a huge amount of social power, right? I mean, yeah. who is a rich, successful woman who's basically not counted uh, legally who's, as an adult. Yeah, just like yeah. It, and the the you know when you go into the story about how like at her lowest moment she was under risk of like losing her kids, essentially was coerced into this and then had signed her <laughs> rights away. It's like. This is still going on. What it's, the, what the yeah. fuck's going on? So, I mean, on? joking aside, I mean, it's an astonishing story. And the legal arrangement itself, the fact that it's uh, in any way tenable is, you know, and it's also astonishing. I suppose, um, I mean, Mary Harrington's brilliant, um, you know, and it's amazing. Act. I mean, Unheard have really got together a remarkable um, stable of writers. I was thinking, actually, like American Affairs and Unheard are two of the standout publications, I think, of um, of the last few years, and both, interestingly, kind of from, you know, from the right, I suppose. Anyway, um, the other thing I wanted to say was, which Mary Harrington doesn't really talk about because it doesn't quite fit her narrative, but one of the creepiest things about the Britney industrial complex is the kind of the way in which her dad has kind of, you know, recreated the most kind of obscene, old-fashioned patriarchy through this kind of business model. So he has control over his daughter's fertility, control over his daughter's... I mean, he basically, you know, it's, it is like old-fashioned patriarchy, but in this, um, you know, kind of uh, completely, completely up-to-date, modern, social media-infused, um, hybrid business model, recognised as a legitimate um, legal vehicle by all the courts in the land. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so creepy, so strange. All of it is so... And, but and like George says, the kind of you know gives the capacity to her dad to completely collapse the autonomy of someone who would otherwise be a tremendously kind of successful independent woman. Yeah, it's an astonishing multi, story. The whole thing, a multi-millionaire. It's very yeah. I mean, so one of the other um, articles which was also in unheard on this topic was about the dadager, so like manager, like momad momager like manager but mother but the dadager anyway so it's like yeah i mean and that's exactly it. it's the the um ownership which is displayed by and the sense of entitlement and the like like even if even if you're like you there might be some idea that you're doing the best for your daughter which actually you know probably seems pretty implausible given um the fact that these you know these these guys come in and just make the money and you know, they, they can't, it seems very difficult. They would, they would be uh, loving fathers and do this sort of thing. But like the, the entitlement and uh, like, it's, yeah, it just leaves I an mean, extremely it, bad taste. Oh, obviously it's, a, it's itself a certain collapsing of public and private in yeah. so far as, you know, you can't trust, you can't hire someone impersonal to manage your affairs, right? To hire a manager, you hire your own parent. And of course the parent's interested as well to get their cut kind of, and, and, you know, feels also that they themselves will have the better interest you know, they themselves also can't trust uh, a, a third party, a manager to come in. I wonder whether this has become more prevalent. I mean, I know from 
because I don't follow pop culture really, but I do follow football and many footballers are often managed by their their brother or their father or their mother who do deals for them. And often it, it gets a bit messy. I think I just heard uh, Adrien Rabiot, who was like a French midfielder, plays for PSG, uh, recently fired his mother as manager, which is like obviously a, a difficult conversation because she was meddling too much <laughs> in his affairs. Um and was uh, part of a controversy where she like yelled at Pogba, another French player's mother, uh, like during the Euros, and like said, "Your your son's responsible for the failures <laughs> of this team and whatever." So it's just this weird blurring of of public and private. So yeah, I mean, actually, this on this point about the collapse of public and private, which is, <clears throat> you know, I think one of the things which comes through a little bit in the in the the piece, this kind of the way that intimacy sells. So like that's obviously like one of the reasons that like Prince, take Prince Harry, for example, like the more that you can reveal of yourself, of your private self, that is a way to to promote your brand or have your brand promoted on yeah. your behalf in some ways. Um, and it's like that, that. And so there, there is then a way, you know, to turn it back on on those of us who watch the documentary or read about this, you know, the, the kind of um, lasciviousness. No, what's, what's the exact Severity, word? George. What, no, what's the word that I'm looking for? The the, the voyeuristic, oh, yeah. the voy like you're, you're looking for these like, oh, that's an incredible picture or that video of Britney having like her head shaved. And it's like, oh, wow, look at this incredible car crash. I can't get enough. And, and, um, and, and what Harrington points out is that there's this, a specific moment in the end of history where she kind of argues that the end of history ended, uh, you know, whatever, we can debate this or not, because it's, it's anyway, the point is not that important, but it's 2008. Well, politics course. ends and you get hedonism and uh, Well, and exactly, but she is making the point that in 2008, the end of history ends. And I don't think the argument holds in this case, but we can put that to one side. What's interesting about the periodization or about that moment is that she said this is where the culture industry, which had been growing, growing and growing, meets the, the new attention economy of social yeah. media. So supposedly, really good, su supposedly lead, would lead this disintermediation would lead to kind of more authentic and direct relationships that you can speak, you can be kind of present on social media. You're not only a consumer anymore of what the culture industry turns out, but you yourself are a producer and it seems yeah. more democratic and, and horizontal. And that's, it, and that's how it sold at the early, yeah. early points. And no one would believe that nowadays, but that ended up blur blurring the lines between celebrity and audience. So we're all mm. voyeurs of each other now. And Chris Crocker is a, is the kind of archetypal almost example of that. We're all Chris Crocker now. Are you going to go into OnlyFans as well? Uh, no, I mean, I you know, if I if I wasn't doing anything else, like I didn't do, I wasn't doing a podcast, I suppose <laughs> I, I could, but I don't think I'd be very successful. So I think, I mean... Uh, um, I think the other element. I guess of that's it, what they call passive income. But I mean, is that only if you're taking it, or if you're because then is is that active income? I don't know. Very clever. Um, I Not guess the question I wanted to, wanted to, I wanted. I guess I wanted to push a bit against the argument, which is: um, is it just a metaphor? Is it actually true? You know. So I mean, are we actually? So I guess you know, is that if we extend it, so what the conservatorship in our case, if you is what the algorithm. So you kind of, you trade away your privacy, you um, display your life through Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, social media of all different forms, TikTok, you trade away your privacy, you kind of live for the likes um, and the attention, um, and you're under the control of um, essentially an algorithm and a corporation. Is that, the, I mean, is that, is it true that you trade away your privacy? Well, and is it, as, I mean, obviously it's not as extreme or as damaging as Britney's experience. But then it would be, experience. but then but it is would there be, any, yeah. does the metaphor really have any legs? Well, then it would be, we're all Chris Crocker now, right? Because Britney had yeah. this taken away, 
you would say, more or less coercively. Well, she, and she's the winner, and, and Chris Crocker is just the loser, but Britney yeah. has a loser at you the have, end too. Yeah, no, but uh, so like the Chris Crocker, Chris Crocker performs the, performs, so maybe, yeah, performs the, like the intimacy and and chooses to do all of this in in a more quote-unquote free way. But the only Britney winner maybe. So Britney's know. dad is a winner? And we don't know anything about him, right? Or, I mean, we only know about him well, through kind so of what's so, talked about in relation to Britney, but he has a private life. So right? he's, the, he's the private equity. This is the private equity analogy that I yeah. was advancing earlier, or, you know, the board, for example, yeah. um, where they are winners, but they're relatively faceless. These owners of yeah. capital, you don't really know them. They're not, you know, they're not, yeah, they're not, not figureheads. They're not figureheads like Bezos. this. Huh? Zuckerberg no, 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 but those, Bezos. no, but precisely those are CEOs of companies, right? So yeah. they're figureheads. The private equity groups, which which own, you know, huge amounts of capital in the world, they're completely faceless, right? I'm not sure, like the right? guy who owns BlackRock and, is, you know, he's a known quant. I mean, yeah, I, okay, okay but not pretty much. His name escapes me now to be point, point proven. <laughs> right? um, is, it, is it Mr. BlackRock? But, no. but, to, to, but to, to, to continue the analogy, right? So neoliberalism has meant that states themselves have been asset stripped as well. While citizens have been robbed of their freedom, so in that way, the the sole Britney mechanism of saving Britney Inc. from Britney Spears uh, is, you know, is kind of uh, saving. Okay, you're stretching it, but I, I want to go back to the the question. I mean, is it true that that model that we, you know, because Mary Harrington, she's resting the case right on this idea that we live for the likes. And we kind of prostitute our we've uh, we've uh, chiseled away our own privacy um, for the sake of the uh, attention because and maybe you know maybe some income if you you know go on OnlyFans or whatever. Um, so is that true though? I mean, I is that how privacy is traded away? May yeah maybe maybe there. I mean there are there are certainly a set of interlocking mechanisms that incentivize you know ever more. Um, freely given out personal information like you, you tweet you don't own those tweets those tweets are about your your life maybe you know what what inspires you to do that um, you know yeah, and she gives the example of Gmail where we um, give um, Google access to all of our kind of uh, very you know perhaps very private correspondence viewing habits all the rest of it in return for unlimited data storage yeah, yeah. well it's not unlimited well but, but ex extensive anyway yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, <laughs> Thank you. Well, was, so because of that, I disagree with what you're saying. No, I uh, mean, I, I thought her conclusion, in fact, was slightly different that this is like this is where culture's going. It's going to be uh, run as a therapeutic conservatorship by those who know best that yeah. actually that model of um, patch tree. Oh, shit. What's it called when you control? So you do something for somebody else's Pat benefit. Patch patronizing um, pa mm. paternalism. Yeah. Oh, God, there in the end. It's very paternalistic, and obviously that's you know the the the, the father the, the exactly. The, I think I need parter. to. I think I need to be dadager here. I'm. I. It's too hot. I'm. I'm struggling. Okay, well, I'm one, English. One, one this final, is like final fucking too warm for me. It's one, above twenty two degrees. Yeah, okay. so I can't think. It's, it's okay, George. It's okay. Dad will take charge. It'll be all right. No, I don't think I'm going to be signing <laughs> keep, keep your ID and shut up. Um, <sighs> one final point that I wanted to make was that about kind of history and periodization, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, which is that, you know, we talk about the end of the end of history. We talk about 
the growth of uh, you know state capitalism or neo-statism, which actually is the subject of our next episode. It's an interview with Paulo Garbado, so just give a shout out to that. Um, so you know, there's a, a political economic transformation going on, and maybe even a socio-cultural one towards protection. Right, that the state no longer um, bases its legitimacy on meritocracy on, uh, you know, setting you free to be out in the market and moving towards protecting people, protecting people from immigrants, protecting people from, you know, climate change or protecting people from COVID, right? Um, Which is a world where there isn't even the thin neoliberal promise of freedom. There's no promise of freedom at all. There's a promise of protection. Anyway, so that's one thing that's going on. But at the same time, this world, this hyper real world of celebrity culture oversharing and the breakdown of privacy continues apace. There seems to be nothing holding back that at a kind of cultural level. So I'm just trying to make these two different dynamics talk to each other and then think yeah. about where they're going. It makes it makes it makes me think I and mean, this isn't directly following on from from that but like who's going to stand up for the the you know the liberal right to privacy, you but know. It, no, the, but the point is if there's a move towards rights. protection, right? If there's a move towards protection, right, to like protect certain things that like neoliberalism's gone too far, right? Too many things have been deterritorialized. So you're saying that the protective the state will give us some privacy then? Or it will try to legitimate itself? I see no evidence of that whatsoever. So that's no. what that's what I'm curious about, whether there will be any move towards no, that. No, because because protection is um, done better when there's more information known Th- about the things that are being protected. To, so this goes back to our episode is... with Benjamin Bratton because, um, exactly. and I, I suspect he, you know, I suspect, even though I disagree with um, almost everything he put forward, I suspect he's right about this, which is that if we're trapped between kind of um, desperately scrabbling to protect our individual privacy and um, the enormous benefits that are offered by these uh, tremendously kind of powerful and extensive organizations, uh, social media companies, uh, you know, data mining, whatever, on the other hand, that's a dichotomy, right? And you, uh, the, the, it, if we end up ricocheting between the two, wanting all the benefits of these uh, large organizations that give us access to data that, you know, know what we want before we know it ourselves, that uh, give us the selection of choices of the algorithm and all of that, and wanting our privacy at the same time, you know, we're stuck. And really, it requires uh, it requires the bunga pill. You don't want to get stuck oh, in the two options. Yeah, I mean, you need to the, transform the context. That's, that, yeah. that's, 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 that's the logic of the whole of the whole thing, isn't it? The more data that's collected, the better the protection is. And anything which which stands in in the way of that is is counter to to that logic. So yeah, I mean, that's, but, I mean, it, it would be good if going. people were more defensive of the. It'd be better if they were already had been. I.e., according to what Mary Harrington said, if we had listened to Chris Crocker, you know, we'd be better off. And I yeah. agree with that. On the other hand, I don't think that merely a defense of privacy is sufficient. Sake is sufficient because yeah. the reason that privacy has been so uh, diluted and and dissolved is primarily because of the retreat of the public sphere. It's not that privacy, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously it's dialectic and whatever, but the, the, the initial cause of it was the... You want to say was the dialectics, shrinking. whatever. <laughs> no, the, the, obviously the, the, these impact upon one another, right? In a recursive process. But the starting point is the, the, the shrinking the of the public. Just for listeners, right there, Alex just waved his hands around. That's the way he thinks dialectics And so on works. and so on. Yeah. <laughs> Sniff. <laughs> Um, yeah, but no, no, I, I, I know, I do, I do take your point. I mean, that's something we could do in an episode on, like public, private we decline of privacy, because it's an old theme, but it's worth uh, revisiting. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, maybe a bit of Richard Senate. Maybe yeah. We'll, 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 we'll <laughs> Phil shakes his head. Anyway, um, that's it for this three articles. Anyone want to want to talk about anything else? Uh, tune in to hear about Alex's OnlyFans in due course. 
Yeah. Mm, yeah. Co- combine that with Patreon. I mean, we already have a platform. What would happen <laughs> if we just had, you know, pictures, of, just pictures of me cuddling with my cat on the sofa? <laughs> I would. Some you know, people would pay, pay for that. Some people would pay not to see it. Me and George would pay not to see it, but some people would pay to see yeah. it. You could just email us or WhatsApp us pictures of that until we're like, okay, enough, enough. We'll give you, we'll give you five pounds, five dollars a month. To stop it. Uh, please, yeah. <laughs> do you want to give us five dollars a month to fuck off? <laughs> uh, all right, that's it from us for now. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this three articles. Uh, let. Let us know what you think. Uh, we'll be responding to your questions and comments. We have quite a lot of them recently in the next Alpha Bonus bonus. Uh, but until then, catch you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.